This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight that each time ended either in the revolutionary reconstruction of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. Communism deprives no man of the power to appropriate the products of society. All that it does is to deprive him of the power to subjugate the labor of others by means of such appropriation. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have the world to win. Welcome to Historical Figures. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Today, we discuss the life and legacy of Karl Marx, the father of communism. While Marx was known for being a proponent of one of the most widely contested socioeconomic systems on the globe, there was a lot more to Marx than just the Communist Manifesto. Marx wasn't just a philosopher who wrote about economics and socialism. In fact, he had a huge repertoire of writing and studied everything from law, economics, politics, math, biochemistry, and foreign languages. By the time of his death, Marx knew French, German, English, Russian, and even ancient Greek. He was also said to be able to read, though not write, in all European languages spoken in his time. Let's talk about a world scholar. But although Marx was an impressive thinker and influential writer who sparked a revolutionary spirit across Europe, he was relatively unknown outside of specialized sects in his own time. In fact, much of his thousands of pages of writing went unpublished until years and even decades after his death. Despite that, Karl Marx became a figure so well-known that his name marks history books around the world, and you would be hard-pressed to find someone who didn't at least have a vague idea of who he was. 
So what exactly was it that Karl Marx did to make himself so well-known? And how did he come up with these so-called crazy ideas that turned into the political theory known as communism? It's sometimes hard to imagine such a learned scholar as an immature kid. But like all great figures, Marx did not simply pop into existence with all of his revolutionary thoughts and ideas intact. Just as he would become a philosopher who others would study and emulate, he, too, was influenced by the revolutionaries of the 1800s. But even before Marx was pining after revolutionaries, Marx was, perhaps unknowingly, being influenced by his childhood teachers. Karl Marx was born on May 5, 1818, in Trier, a city in Prussia. Though little is known of Marx's childhood, we do know that until high school, Marx was homeschooled by his father. This in itself is pretty fascinating, as his father was a highly educated Jewish lawyer who drew influence from Enlightenment thinkers like Kant and Voltaire, philosophers who supported liberal ideas, including constitutional governance and religious tolerance, ideas that were in short supply in the early 1800s when Marx was growing up. In fact, Marx's father was even forced to convert from Judaism to Lutheranism and change his name to avoid losing his job in an anti-Semitic, dominantly Christian state. Some theorize that rampant anti-Semitism factored prominently into Karl Marx's passion for social reform. But it wasn't just his father that influenced Marx in his formative years. In 1830, Marx entered Trier High School, which employed a large number of liberal teachers. So liberal, in fact, that the local Trier government, which was conservative like the Prussian government, instituted reforms at the school and fired teachers who had been passing around writings that were politically liberal. This wouldn't be the last time that Marx's teachers would be booted out by the government for their radical or liberalist thought. In fact, the Prussian government would become one of Marx's biggest obstacles in achieving his goals. You see, Prussia, which was one of the many Germanic states in Europe at the time, had just emerged from the Napoleonic Wars of the early 1800s as a victorious powerhouse at the time of Marx's birth in 1818. Prussia was ruled by a conservative monarchy bent on quashing any potential liberal uprisings that threatened the aristocracy. And, as we know, Marx was anything but conservative. He was also anything but meek. Over the course of his life, he would repeatedly challenge not only the Prussian government, but governments across Europe. But where exactly did this revolutionary spirit come from? That's a great question. I believe you mentioned before that every great revolutionary needs inspiration. For Marx, that influential factor cropped up in the dawn of his second undergraduate program. Second? Mm -hmm. Perhaps I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. You see, Karl Marx first enrolled as a law student in Bonn University in 1835, but transferred to Berlin University only a year later at the bequest of his father, who wanted Marx to take a more serious stance on education. So that year at Bonn University was basically a wasted year? Well, not exactly. Though he changed universities fairly quickly, it was at Bonn University university that he met and got engaged to Jenny von Westphalen, with whom he would have a lifelong marriage and many children. Ah, young love. Oh, they must have been together all the time. Well, not exactly. Their engagement alone lasted seven years. In fact, they spent most of their early adult years in different cities and sometimes even different countries. As a result, most of their correspondence during that time was through letters. Jenny once wrote in a letter, quote, 
I have feelings of the deepest, sincerest love and gratitude towards you, my dear, good and only sweetheart. Every time after you had gone, I was in a state of delight, and would always have liked to have you back again to tell you once more how much, how wholly, I love you." End quote. And Marx wrote, Thus it is with my love. You only need to be removed from me, if only by dreams. And I know at once that time does to my love for you what sun and rain do to a plant. It makes it grow. So Bonn University brought him his love. But it wasn't until he enrolled in Berlin University in 1836, again as a law student, that he would find himself in the presence of a group of people that would change him forever. In his first year at Berlin University, Marx joined the Doctors' Club, a student society that closely followed and participated in the new literary and philosophical movements of the time. In particular, they admired a philosopher by the name of Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hegel was a German philosopher who developed many theories of thoughts, but most relevantly a type of reasoning known today as dialectical thinking, which, although pretty complicated, is basically just a very thorough way of analyzing how society is structured and why. But what made Hegel important to Marx was less the man himself and more the revolutionary youth culture that surrounded the great thinker. The Doctors' Club was not, as one might think, a group dedicated to medical endeavors, but rather the meeting ground for the young Hegelians, a radical group who opposed the conservative Christian way of thinking and, as a consequence, the conservative Prussian government that backed it. The young Hegelians were predominantly atheistic, radically liberal, and driven by a desire to see change in what they believed was a stagnant system. Interestingly, though, Marx did not immediately take to the young Hegelian movement. In fact, in one letter to his father, he wrote, I'm sick from intense vexation at having to make an idol of a view I detested. What exactly changed his mind is unclear, but it may have been due to a fiery young lecturer at the university by the name of Bruno Bauer. Bauer was a chief figure for the young Hegelian movement at Berlin University, and his lectures on theology and philosophy instilled a sense of activism in the hearts of the students. The young Hegelians began gaining traction, not just at Marx's university, but at universities across Prussia. Their movement began to move towards atheism, which contrasted with the predominantly Christian state, and the young Hegelians began to talk of taking action to tear down the current bourgeois system and reform the government. In the 1800s, the bourgeois was the social class that owned the means of productions and were essentially the big business owners of their time. They were equivalent to today's wealthy upper class, and there was just as much animosity between the bourgeois and the working class as there is between the upper class and working class in modern Western countries. Of course, the Prussian government was not about to let that happen. And before the young Hegelians could take any real action, the government began to drive them from Prussian universities. Bauer, among other followers of Hegelian radicalism, was dismissed from his position as lecturer in 1839, leaving the doctors' club to fend for themselves. That didn't phase Marx, though. Well, that's right. Marx carried on with the study of Hegel, combining Hegelian theory with the ideas of philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach. Feuerbach wrote about the concept of materialism, which is the idea that everything in the world, including the human mind, is a result of occurrences in the material world, i.e. the things we can touch and feel. Basically, his philosophy states that if the physical world didn't exist, 
we wouldn't have awareness, much less the ability to think. These ideas on materialism would become a mainstay for some of Marx's ideas on socialism, the very same ideas that would drive him to create the ideas around the political system he is most famous for, communism. In April of 1841, Marx graduated from Berlin University with a doctorate of philosophy. His dissertation on the difference between two branches of ancient Greek philosophy was characteristically and heavily Hegelianistic, a clear message that Marx wasn't going to kowtow to the government or sacrifice his opinions in favor of a safer route. Though Marx had intended to go into a career as a university professor, he found this route closed by the Prussian government, which had no intention of letting another radical Hegelian into the university ranks. So instead, he began a career in journalism. A little less than a year after graduating, Marx wrote his first article. It was bold, a critique of Prussian censorship and the feudal absolutist system that allowed it. Censorship is official criticism. The censor, too, is accuser, defender, and judge in a single person. Control of the mind is entrusted to the censor, yet he is irresponsible. Several months later, in May of 1842, Marx joined the influential Rheinstück Zeitung, a liberal newspaper unafraid to call out the conservative Prussian government. He wrote articles on social and economic issues. His topics were varied, touching on everything from the highly philosophical ideas of socialism to the very real and concrete plight of the Berlin poor. Within five months, Marx was the editor-in-chief of the paper. He began to push the paper in an even more democratic and revolutionary direction. He published articles in support of social and economic reform and articles against the Prussian government and its officials. In other words, he published what the people wanted and what the government was afraid of. The Rheinstück Zeitung was a success under Marx's direction. Circulation of the newspaper tripled after his employment as the editor-in-chief, and it soon became one of the leading papers in Prussia, which was great news for Marx. And not such great news for the Prussian government. In January of 1843, the government placed a stringent censorship on the paper, with the demand to have the paper completely shut down by April 1st. This is ironic, considering one of Marx's earliest articles was on the evils of censorship and the necessity of freedom of the press. In the press law, freedom punishes. In the censorship law, freedom is punished. The censorship law treats freedom as a criminal. Marx tried to forge on, but the restrictions were too great, and he eventually resigned on March 18th, a little less than a month before the paper folded. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to historical figures. Though this may have seemed like an insurmountable roadblock to some, to Marx it was merely a hurdle, one in a long line of challenges that he would face in his determination to bring power to the working class of Europe. In October of 1843, Marx and his newly wedded wife moved to Paris. 
There, Marx began to gain contacts among the underground revolutionary movements. He went to many workers' meetings, both public and clandestine, and made friends with the leaders in the League of the Just, a secret society of mainly emigrant German workers. This underground society would come to play a huge role in the future of Marx's communist revolution. Their ideas are utterly crude and unintelligent, but the brotherhood of man is no mere phrase with them. It is but a fact of life, and the nobility of man shines upon us from their work-hardened bodies. That's what Marx said of the men in his first major work on economics, the economic and philosophic manuscripts. It was a harsh criticism on the bourgeois political economy, and it trumpeted his passion for change. It was also not published for over 100 years after his death. This was to be a running theme for much of Marx's work. Mm -hmm. And although his writing didn't influence the socialist movements of his time, it did show a heart and humanism that became the foundation of his later economic and social theories. If money is the bond binding me to human life, binding society to me, connecting me with nature and man, is not money the bond of all bonds? It was around the time that Marx was working on his manuscripts that he met the man who had become his most profound supporter and partner in crime and writing, a man by the name of Friedrich Engels. Engels was a writer and philosopher cut from Marx's own cloth, a supporter of the working class and a critic of the repressive Prussian government that enforced the cycle of poverty. In truth, they first met a few years earlier in Germany when Engels visited the Rheinische Zeitung office. Ironically, at the time, they didn't like each other at all. But when they met up in Paris in August of 1844, both with a more open mindset, they found that they clicked. It was then that they began their lifelong friendship and co-authorship, one that would make them famous around the world. That month, they began writing their first work together, The Holy Family, or Critique of Critical Criticism against Bruno Bauer and Company. Wait a second, Bruno Bauer? Wasn't that the guy that Marx looked up to in his university days? Indeed it was. The Holy Family was a critique of the young Hegelian movement. Though Marx started as a young Hegelian, during his work on the Rheinische Zeitung, he began to drift from Hegelian thought, finding it too much a farce. The young Hegelian movement had been reduced to shocking the bourgeois, rather than taking actionable steps towards change. So more of a stunt show than a political movement? Yeah, more or less. The book, however, garnered mixed but impassioned reviews from liberal and conservative newspapers. One such conservative paper wrote, Every line preaches revolt, revolt against the state, the church, the family, legality, religion, and property. Prominence is given to the most radical and the most open communism, and this is all the more dangerous. Lenin, the communist revolutionary who established the Soviet Union, later claimed this work laid the groundwork for what would become a scientific, revolutionary materialist socialism. In other words, it was pretty important. (laughs) It was because of his book, in conjunction with Marx and Engels' work on the short-lived radical paper, the German-French yearbooks, that a conservative government once again went on the warpath against Marx. On January 16, 1845, Marx was expelled from Paris and moved to Brussels. Engels followed him there a month later. That year, Marx renounced his Prussian nationality. Over the next two years, Marx and Engels began to write more and more together. 
They traveled, too, establishing contacts with Belgian socialists and English Chartist leaders, a group which fought for workers' rights, as well as reaching out again to the League of the Just, the secretive socialist worker society that Marx had met a couple years prior. Unlike other revolutionaries, Marx believed that the proletariat, or working class, could not simply leap into communism. They could not skip over stages of bourgeois society or launch an attack based solely on morals. There needed to be a scientific basis for action. In other words, look before you leap. No, not just look before you leap, but make sure you've built a bridge to leap on. Which is exactly what Marx and Engels set out to do. In early 1846, the two budding revolutionaries established the Communist Correspondence Committee, an organization that sought to ideologically unite socialists and workers across different countries. The committee was a success, paving the way for an international working class organization, one that would form the true basis of communism. A year later, a proverbial knock on Marx's door would lead to Marx and Engels' most famous work of writing. In January of 1847, the London branch of the Secretive Socialist League of the Just, whom Marx and Engels had met members of several times over the prior years, sent a representative to request Marx and Engels join the League. And not just join it, but to help completely remake it. Of course, the two agreed. On June 2nd, a League of the Just Congress commenced in London. Engels, though not Marx, attended and helped draw up the new rules for the group. They also adopted a new motto, Working Men of All Countries Unite. By the end of the year, the League of the Just had renamed themselves the Communist League and had instructed Marx and Engels to draft a manifesto for the new organization. A Communist Manifesto. For a little over a month, Marx and Engels drafted the document, and in February of 1848, the Manifesto of the Communist Party was published in London. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries, unite. The newly adorned Communist League immediately adopted the manifesto, which set out 10 initial actions, aka the first steps towards communism. Here might be a good time to note that although Marx and Engels popularized communism, they were not the original creators of this idea, nor did they coin the phrase. The idea of communism traces back centuries before Marx was born. Many early civilizations were said to use the principle of communism, that is, sharing resources communally. But the first mention of the actual term communism comes from the writings of French philosopher Victor Dupay. Dupay first used the term in his 1777 book, Project for a Philosophical Community, which describes communists as those who, quote, share all economic and material products between inhabitants of the commune so that all may benefit from everybody's work, end quote. But it wasn't until Marx and Engels came around that communism really started to take off as a potential political system. And for the first time, some real, concrete steps were in place. The steps range from free education for all children to progressive income tax and the abolition of inheritance. It was the dawn of the Communist Party. But of course, as with all bold and revolutionary actions taken by Marx, there was a negative reaction from the current government. On March 3, 1848, the King of Belgium ordered Marx to leave the country partly out of fear of Marx's new radical party, and partly because he was irked that the French provisional government invited Marx to France. He gave Marx 24 hours to leave. A few days later, Marx found himself settled in Paris, followed a half a month later by Engels. 
As soon as Marx set foot on the new, but familiar, ground, he established a new central body of the Communist League in Paris. Marx wasn't phased by his latest stint in exile. In fact, there was more to be happy about than upset in Marx's eyes. It was the March of Revolution. Unease was stirring in Europe. Vienna, Hungary, and Berlin were all starting to make moves towards overthrowing their governments, and Marx and Engels were ready to help. In late March, the two went to Germany to take part in the revolution. They re-established the once-banned Rheinischtig Zeitung, naming it aptly the new Rheinischtig Zeitung. Marx was the editor-in-chief, Engels an editor. The paper was radically democratic and took a strong stance against the Prussian autocracy. They used the paper to campaign for a unified democratic German state, in addition to supporting working-class rights in other countries. Though some revolutions seem successful, Paris and Hungary, for instance, managed to have a large working-class uprising, others faced a stronger counter-revolutionary force. Over the next several months, Marx traveled to Vienna and Berlin, establishing contacts with workers' organizations and democratic fronts. In September, a mass public meeting took place in Cologne, the heart of revolutionary spirit in Germany, seeking ways to combat the aristocracy's counter-revolution. As a result, they established a committee of public safety, which would act as the organizing center for the revolutionists. Marx, Engels, and a few other editors on the new Rheinischtig Zeitung were elected to run the committee, which was to be the communist beam of hope for the coming fight. But the fight would not be so easy. Just a month after the establishment of the Committee of Public Safety in October of 1848, the revolutionary uprising in Vienna ended in a victory for the aristocracy. Croatian freedom and order has won the day, and this victory was celebrated with arson, rape, looting, and other atrocities. Vienna is in the hands of Vindisgratz, Jelicic, and Augsburg. Treachery of every kind prepared the way for Vienna's fall. Marx wrote grimly in the paper of Vienna's loss, launching a diatribe against the bourgeoisie, whom he believed were the sole cause and beneficiary of the counter-revolution's success. The entire performance of the Imperial Diet and the Town Council since October 6 is a tale of continuous treachery. Who are the people represented in the Imperial Diet and the Town Council? The bourgeoisie. To which strata do these groups of the National Guard belong? To the bourgeoisie. Who fled from Vienna in large numbers after leaving their wealth to be watched over by the magnanimous people? The people whom, in reward for their watchman's duties, they maligned while away and whose massacre they witnessed on their return? The bourgeoisie. It likely came as an even larger blow, considering the first plan Marx had advocated to bring revolution to Austria and Germany was a uniting of the working class and the bourgeoisie. Ah, back to the whole idea of not leaping over the bourgeoisie class when aiming for revolution, right? Exactly. He believed that true victory could only come if the two groups worked together, not against each other. He even went against workers' unions that advocated for an immediate proletarian uprising. But in characteristic nature, the aristocrat's success did not stifle Marx's spirit. He became even more determined to bring about a revolution. 
the purposeless massacres perpetrated since the June and October events, the tedious offering of sacrifices since February and March, the very cannibalism of the counter-revolution will convince the nations that there is only one way in which the murderous death agonies of the old society and bloody birth throes of the new society can be shortened, simplified, and concentrated. And that way is revolutionary terror. It wasn't just in Vienna where the counter-revolution saw its victory. The uprising of the French working class, but a few months earlier, was also easily quashed by the bourgeoisie. The defeat of the working class in France and the victory of the French bourgeoisie was at the same time the defeat of the middle classes in all European countries, where the middle classes, united for the moment with the people, responded with sanguinary insurrections against feudalism. Naples, Vienna, Berlin. The defeat of the working class in France and the victory of the French bourgeoisie was at the same time a victory of East over West, the defeat of civilization by barbarism. Thus, the liberation of Europe, whether brought about by the struggle of the oppressed nationalities for their independence or by overthrowing feudal absolutism, depends on the successful uprising of the French working class. It was merely another impassioned statement in his radical newspaper. At the time, Marx probably had no idea that a little over two decades later, his words would be the rallying of the French Socialist Revolution. But there was still much to be done before then, much of which Marx could not predict. In February of 1849, about a month after publishing the article that proclaimed France's revolution would bring about the liberation of Europe, Marx and his paper were put on trial. The government, in characteristic fashion, was looking for any means to silence him. They indicted him on several charges, including encouraging people not to pay their taxes. Engels, among others, came to Marx's defense, and Marx himself proclaimed that the crown was engaged in illegal counter-revolution. The trial was brief, and the jury not only acquitted him unanimously, but also thanked him for his words. But naturally, the Prussian government wasn't about to let Marx get off that easily. For a few more months, Marx's paper published article after article taking the side of insurgents and encouraging armed uprisings across Prussia. By May, the government was fed up, and on May 16, 1849, Prussian authorities once again ordered Marx to leave Prussia. In a final rebellion, Marx printed the last issue of the new Rheinische Zeitung in red with a parting message to the workers of Cologne. Finally, we warn you against any violent uprising in Cologne. In the military situation, you would be irretrievably lost. You have seen in Elberfield that the bourgeoisie sends the workers into the fire and betrays them afterwards in the most infamous way. A state of siege in Cologne would demoralize the entire Rhine province. And a state of siege would be the inevitable consequence of any rising on your part at this moment. The Prussians will be frustrated by your calmness. In bidding you farewell, the editors of the new Rheinische Zeitung thank you for the sympathy you have shown them. Their last word everywhere, and always will be, emancipation of the working class. The newspaper caused a great sensation, but nevertheless, Marx once again had to leave his homeland, this time banished as an alien. The following month found Marx back in Paris, where it was expected that a major revolutionary event was to take place. 
Of course, as we know, Marx still had a couple more decades before his role in the socialist French Revolution was to come to fruition. The French democratic leaders failed to organize their forces, and the attempted fiery uprising ended in a sad smolder. And of course, Marx was yet again ordered to leave Paris within 24 hours. On August 26, 1849, Marx moved to London, which would become his final home and resting place. But there was a lot more for Marx to accomplish. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Now the story continues. On arriving in London, Marx immediately helped organize the Communist League Central Authority in London, in addition to setting up a committee of support for German political refugees. A few months later, Engels moved to London, once again following his friend from place of banishment to place of banishment, and the two started drafting an address to the Central Authority. The document was one of many that aimed to sum up the struggle of the proletariat in past revolutions and create an action plan for future communist action. This might be a good time to interject that Marx, though filled with writing passion, was making almost no money off his writing. That's right. Through most of this period of his life, he and his family were subsisting primarily on bread and potatoes. Four of Marx's seven young children died in poverty over the years. But during their time in London, they were so impoverished that Marx's wife once had to run about borrowing money just to buy a coffin for their departed son. His only steady source of income during this time was from an American paper, the New York Daily Tribune. He and Engels wrote over 500 articles for the paper between 1851 and 1862. Their topics ranged from national liberation movements, economics, politics, international affairs, and capitalism. But as illustrious as it was, the compensation was barely enough to rent two bedrooms for their six-person family in London, and Marx couldn't convince himself to get any other job. In fact, throughout his entire life, the only job Marx ever made money from was journalism. But Marx was lucky. Though he didn't have a large income, he did have a very generous friend. Engels? Yep. Good old Engels. You see, while Marx only made money through his writing, Engels had many jobs throughout the years. During their time in England, Engels worked at his father's cotton-spinning mill firm, Ehrman and Engels. He began as a clerk, passing on small sums of money to his friend. But by 1864, Engels was a partner at the firm and was in the habit of giving Marx and his family large and generous donations. Though Marx was lucky to have a friend like Engels, and Engels would often say he was just as lucky to have a friend like Marx, they were not so lucky when it came to the communist front. That's right. The communist movement was gaining traction, but not in a way Marx wanted. There were communists popping up everywhere around Europe, but they were impatient, hungry for a revolution they felt needed to happen immediately. But as we know, Marx was against that. He loathed the idea of direct revolutionary ventures, fearing a militant communist attack. In September of 1850, Marx wrote, These communists substitute idealism for materialism and see pure will as the motive power of revolution instead of actual conditions. While we say to the workers, you have got to go through 15, 20, 50 years of civil wars and national wars, not merely in order to change your conditions, but in order to change yourselves and become qualified for political power. You, on the contrary, tell them, we must achieve power immediately. 
But the militant communist faction didn't agree with Marx's slow burn of a revolution. They ridiculed him for being a weak revolutionary, limited to giving speeches and lectures, rather than taking actual steps towards revolution. And try as he might, Marx could not stop them. All he could do was attempt to convince them with words. Words that inevitably fell on deaf ears. Two years later, on November 17th of 1852, several active Communist League members were arrested for their involvement in the 1848 March revolutions across Europe. The Cologne Communist trial in 1852 saw the arrested Communist League members convicted of high treason against the Prussian government for their involvement in the revolutions four years prior. The result of the trial was a crushing moral and political blow to the Communist League, and Marx, as well as many of the League's more respected members, quickly realized that the end was imminent. Knowing this, Marx proposed a sad request to the London district of the Communist League. He requested, with much regret, that the London Communist League dissolve its branches and recommended that all the branches across Europe close as well. Though there were many protests, the Communist League acquiesced, and Marx watched as the organization he had worked so hard to promote closed its doors for good. For the next several years, Marx did very little in the way of political activism. He wrote an open letter to the Labour Parliament calling for a mass working-class political party in England, but it hardly gained any traction. Seeing his political actions dwindling in effectiveness, Marx instead turned to his studies. Throughout the final years of his life, he would take up mathematics, chemistry, geology, and even the Russian language, an endeavor fairly impressive for a man in his 50s. It was also during this time that he began to write the manuscripts for his magnum opus, Das Kapital, or simply Capital. For nearly five years, he worked on the first of what would become three volumes of the massive book. It was a doorstopper that discussed a variety of topics, but took a particularly long look at capitalism. Just as a man is governed, in religion, by the products of his own brain, so in capitalist production, he is governed by the products of his own hand. It was an investigatory book of sorts, looking at the development, reasoning, and nature of capitalism, in addition to predicting the future of what he believed was a corrupt system. In the midst of this endeavor, a new workers' association was starting to make its way into the London political sphere. On September 28, 1864, the International Working Men's Association, otherwise known by its much more quippy name, the First International, was founded in London. Though the organization started in London, its aim was global. It sought to unite and bring rights to workers around the world. Marx's call for a mass working class political party just about a decade earlier finally came to light. And naturally, the First International looked to Marx as a guiding light in their future fight. They elected him a member of the General Council and asked that he draft the provisional rules and inaugural address of the new association. Marx worked tirelessly at promoting and supporting the First International, so much so that he even set aside work on capital in order to bring the organization up. As in his previous organizations, he was a much-loved and respected figure in the First International. His passion struck a chord with the people. One German exile said he was an intellectual customs agent and border guard, appointed on his own authority. And another colleague noted Marx was a born leader of the people. 
Interestingly, though, Marx rarely spoke to crowds. In fact, he had a lisp and wasn't too great at public speaking, despite his prowess on the page. Marx was keenly aware of this fact, but it didn't seem to bother him. He knew his writing was a powerful tool. My words are my slaves, and they must serve me as I please. And serve them they did. From the Communist Manifesto to Capital and everything in between, Marx's words always caused a sensation. And Marx's reaction to the next big revolutionary movement in Europe was no exception. But first, a little background. You see, tensions were high in Europe at the dawn of 1870. Not only were revolutionary sects popping up left and right, but governments were getting antsy. In other words, they were rearing to fight each other. On July 19, 1870, France declared war on Germany with hopes of expanding their territory, thus beginning the Franco-Prussian War. Marx worried that the bourgeoisie would turn this war against each other into a war against the proletariat. In other words, he worried the upper class would use the lower class as tools in their quest for more power, thus aiming the lower class's focus on each other rather than on their oppressors. Hoping to stop this, Marx ushered out a pamphlet urging German workers not to allow the war to become a war against the French people. If the German working class allows the present war to lose its strictly defensive character and to degenerate into a war against the French people, victory of defeat will prove alike disastrous. All the miseries that befell Germany after her wars of independence will revive with accumulated intensity. The Paris branch of the First International echoed Marx's fear, saying, once more, on the pretext of European equilibrium, of national honor, the peace of the world is menaced by political ambitions. But Germany broke from its defensive stance, and on September 1st, Germany overtook the French army in a decisive battle that ultimately caused France to surrender the war. But a few days after this decisive battle, mass uprisings broke out in Paris. It was a revolution. France's second empire collapsed, and a new French Republic took its place, now under a parliamentary system rather than its previous constitutional monarchy. On March 18, 1871, in the wake of France's loss to Germany in the Franco-Prussian War, some 400 discarded cannons were left scattered across Paris. The new French government, looking to disarm Paris, sent troops to take back the cannons before the French people got to them. It was too late. The French proletariat had already taken control of the cannons and were refusing to give them up. The soldiers sent to take back the cannons refused to shoot their citizens and instead gave up their weapons. Shortly after, the Parisian National Guard held a free election in which the citizens decided that Paris would be an independent commune and that France should be a confederation of said communes. It was the world's first socialist working class uprising. And of course, Marx was incredibly excited. He wrote one of his most famous pamphlets, The Civil War in France, enthusiastically defending the newly established Paris Commune. History has no comparable example of such greatness. Its martyrs are enshrined forever in the great heart of the working class. Before long, Marx's name became a symbol of the revolutionary spirit demonstrated in the Paris Commune. Though the Paris Commune collapsed within a few months, forced to succumb to a new military force sent into the city by the government, Marx was full throttle in promoting communism as best he could. 
Over the next decade, Marx continued writing and supporting socialist and communist papers and organizations. However, things were not looking so good for Marx's hopeful working-class takeover. The first international crumbled under infighting. Germany passed a law banning socialist parties. Marx's health began to deteriorate. In the last decade of his life, Marx's failing liver, along with the chronic depression, left the great revolutionary a shell of his former self. Though he continued to help his cause where he could, even going so far as to help the Russian Communist Party write a manifesto, Marx's time on this earth was coming to a close. On March 14, 1883, Karl Marx died in London. His ideas, however, did not die with him. In fact, in the years following his death, Marx became synonymous with a movement that became known across the globe. Thanks to the Russian Revolution in 1917, communism became more than a mere utopian fantasy, but an actual, tangible possibility. By the mid-1900s, more than a third of the world was living under a Marxist regime. But sadly for Marx, the communism of the 20th century was not respected, but feared. His name and message became twisted. He became a symbol not of hope, but of dictatorship, destruction, and anti-freedom. At his core, though, Marx was a humanist, dedicated to seeing the lives of his countrymen improved, not squandered by the wars fought between powerful men who wished to be even more powerful. And Marx was not a tyrant, but a philosopher. Though he condemned capitalism as a corrupted system, he did not condemn those who created it. In fact, he believed that capitalism was created for a good reason, that is, boosting the economy for the benefit of the masses. So, although Marx's communism has since been drenched in fear and twisted beyond its original goal, Marx's words continue to have a profound impact on the world at large. On March 17, 1883, when Marx was buried at Highgate Cemetery in London, his dearest friend and lifelong collaborator, Friedrich Engels, gave a final statement on the father of communism. Quote, Marx was before all else a revolutionist. He fought with a passion, a tenacity, and a success such as few could rival. Marx was the best hated and most calumniated man of his time. Governments, both absolutist and republican, deported him from their territories. Bourgeois, whether conservative or ultra-democratic, vied with one another in heaping slanders upon him. All this he brushed aside as though it were a cobweb, ignoring it, answering only when extreme necessity compelled him. He died beloved, revered and mourned by millions of revolutionary fellow workers, from the mines of Siberia to California, in all parts of Europe and America, and I make bold to say that, though he may have had many opponents, he had hardly one personal enemy. His name will endure through the ages, and so also will his work." End quote. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. 
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I know it seems simple, but it really helps our show. And don't forget to join us next Wednesday as we explore the fascinating life of John Adams. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Jen Enfield Kane and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. Our amazing voice actor is Mike Capozzi. 